Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thanks for joining us for February 3rd, Saturday reading of the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. Today, I'll be reading the following main articles. Aurora Shelters Offering Vaccines to Protect Homeless with Meningitis Outbreak by Max Levy, Sentinel Colorado Staff Writers. Aurora Firefighters Rescue Man Stuck in Garbage Truck Friday Morning by Max Levy, Sentinel Colorado Staff Writer. War Protesters Interrupt Crow by Nina Joss. Arapahoe County Counts the Unhoused by Taylor Shaw. Found with Loaded Gun, an Arapahoe Community College student is arrested by Nina Joss. And I'll also be reading various other stories and articles. Aurora Shelter is offering vaccines to protect homeless from meningitis outbreak. Aurora's homeless shelters began rolling out vaccines against the bacteria responsible for serious and sometimes fatal cases of meningitis Friday, following a string of infections reported among Denver's unhoused population. Seventeen people were vaccinated against meningococcola bacteria February 2nd during a free pop-up clinic held at the Aurora Day Resource Center, according to the Adams County Health Department. It was the first of a series of clinics sponsored by the County Health Department catering to Aurora's homeless residents. The second clinic will take place at the Comatis Crisis Center from 4.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. February 6th. While public health officials say the Menagococcola bacteria outbreak poses little risks to most people, the threat to homeless people living and sleeping side-by-side in group shelters during cold weather is significant enough that Adams and Denver counties are working proactively to prevent more infections in and around Denver. Outbreaks are rare. It's a rare infection, but it's extremely serious, said Bernadette Albanese, medical director of the Adams County Health Department. We're trying to offer a vaccine in lots of different settings where these individuals receive their services as a way to prevent the infection from getting introduced into more places. Denver's Department of Public Health and Environment report reported Friday that since January 12th, four homeless people living in Denver have become sick due to a confirmed Menagococcola infection. The infections can cause meningitis, a potentially fatal inflammation of the membrane surrounding the brain and spine, as well as other life-threatening illnesses. Bacteria can spread through the saliva of an infected person, which means people living in close proximity are at a higher risk of infecting one another, especially if they share eating utensils, beverages, cigarettes, and other items that may come into contact with an infected person's mouth or nose. Courtney Rahner, a spokeswoman for the Denver Department, said no connection has been established among the four Denver cases. Still, the department is referring to the cases as a community-based outbreak. While risk for transmission is low for the general public, We are recommending people experiencing homelessness get the vaccine because of the uptick in cases in this population, Rahner said. 
The four patients that the department knows of were offered antibiotics, as were fellow shelter users and staff at the locations where the patients had recently stayed. Denver has started standing up vaccine clinics of its own at local homeless shelters and will continue vaccinating unhoused residents throughout the next few months, Rahner said. The three county health departments serving Aurora say there have so far been no local cases of menagoccola, disease stemming from the Denver outbreak. Arapaho and Douglas County health officials indicated that they are aware of and are monitoring the outbreak and are watching for local reports of infections, but they are not planning vaccination events. Albany said Adams County health care workers plan to return to the Aurora Day Resource Center and comatose several times to vaccinate and provide prevention information to as many clients as possible. And we're trying to figure out other settings where we can do that as well, she said. You have to go back and go back and go back and encourage people to get the vaccine. And hopefully people get one. And hopefully people get their questions answered. Aurora firefighters rescue man stuck in garbage truck Friday morning. A man was pulled injured but alive from the inside of a garbage truck Friday morning after the driver heard moaning coming from the truck's container and called 911, Aurora firefighters said. Firefighters said it remains a mystery how the man ended up inside of the truck. It's not known how long the patient was stuck, Aurora Fire Rescue spokesman Shannon Hardy wrote in an email. Once the trash truck driver called 911, AFR responded and worked worked quickly to extricate the individual safely. Hardy said the driver was alerted to the man's presence early in his route, which likely saved the man from being crushed by the compactor inside of the truck that would have been turned on as more garbage was piled on top of him. Shortly after 5 a.m., firefighters met the driver near Wheeling Street and East 19th Place and sent a team into the container of the truck. The team stayed with the man until a door to the container was opened. Hardy said firefighters used a spine board and a tarp to lift the man to safety. Aurora Fire Rescue said in a news release that the man was transported to a local hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Colorado Settlement would improve care accommodations for trans women inmates. By Mo Clark, KFF Health News, Denver. Talia Murphy received a letter in early 2018 about a soon-to-be-filed class-action lawsuit brought on behalf of transgender women like her who were housed in men's prisons in Colorado. It gave her hope. Murphy and other trans women in Colorado had faced years of sexual harassment and often violence from staff members and fellow incarcerated people. They were denied requests for safer housing options and medical treatment, including surgery, for gender dysphoria, the psychological distress that some trans people experience because of the incongruence between their sex assigned at birth and their gender identity, according to the lawsuit. We were targets for victimizing, whether it was sexual assault, extortion, you name it, said Murphy, 
who was released from prison in 2020. Most of the time, she added, the guards just looked the other way. A historical legal settlement called a consent decree, expected to be finalized by early March, would establish two new voluntary housing units for incarcerated trans women, making Colorado the first state to offer a separate unit, according to attorneys in the case. The federal law states such units are prohibited unless court-ordered. The plan outlined in the agreement, which received preliminary approval last fall, would mandate the Colorado Department of Corrections pay a $2.15 million settlement to affected trans women, update its protocols and staff training, improve medical and mental health care, limit cross-gender searches from correctional officers, and require correction staff to use correct names and pronouns for trans women inmates. A state judge held a hearing on the consent decree on January 4th and is expected to finalize it by early March, after she granted an extension to allow more incarcerated women to be notified of the settlement. Approximately 400 currently or formerly incarcerated trans women are eligible to be beneficiaries. Housing assignments in U.S. prisons are nearly exclusively based on a person's anatomy, despite a federal law outlining that the safety concerns of trans people should be taken into consideration when determining placement. That's because they are significantly more likely than inmates who are not trans to be sexually or physically assaulted while incarcerated. It's like putting targets on their back, said Paula Greeson, the civil rights lawyer who filed the class action lawsuit in 2019 alongside the California-based Transgender Law Center. The U.S. Department of Justice found in 2014 that incarcerated trans people are more likely to, be, to experience sexual violence behind bars from staff members and other incarcerated people, with 35% of trans inmates surveyed reporting have been assaulted in the previous 12 months. A 2007 study of trans women in California prisons found that 59% reported having been sexually assaulted during their incarceration, a rate 13 times higher than for others housed in prisons. Colorado's case comes amid a growing number of lawsuits across the country aimed at improving access to gender-affirming care and safety for incarcerated trans people. In a landmark 1994 case, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that prison officials' deliberate indifference to a prisoner's safety concerns violates the the Eighth Amendment's Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause. Since then, Incarcerated trans people have won legal cases against prison administrations in Washington, Georgia, California, and Idaho. And while a handful of states, including Colorado, have written policies regarding gender-affirming care and surgery, the barriers to assessing care are often insurmountable, an issue the consent decree hopes to address. California became the first state to establish policies on gender-affirming medical care in prisons, providing gender-affirming surgery starting in 2017. In 2019, a three-judge panel ruled that the state of Idaho was required to perform a surgery 
officials had previously denied. One incarcerated person in Colorado has had gender-affirming surgery, according to a Department of Correction spokesperson. The Constitution requires jails and prisons to provide the same standard of care available in the community, said Matthew Murphy, an assistant professor of medicine and behavioral sciences at Brown University and a physician who oversees gender-affirming clinical care for the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. Matthew and Talaye are not related. With Medicaid and private insurance increasingly covering gender-affirming care, he said, there is a growing precedent. There were 148 trans women housed in Colorado prisons as of December, according to a Department of Corrections spokesperson, with nine trans women residing in women's facilities. Before 2019, trans women were housed exclusively with men. The class action lawsuit relates only to trans women and does not include trans men, non-binary people, or intersex people. The lawsuit was filed after a young trans woman who had previously been housed with girls in a juvenile facility was transferred to an adult men's prison, and she was brutally raped. Her numerous requests to be housed with other women, citing safety concerns, had been denied. After taking on the woman's case, Greeson quickly stumbled upon many more trans women who had experienced similar violence. She contacted the Colorado Attorney General's office and Governor's office, but little change, prompting her to file the class action. The Department of Corrections in every state, it's like trying to turn around the Titanic. There's so much bureaucracy, Greeson said, you often have to sue to get their attention. The World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the leading professional organization that sets standards for the medical treatment of people with gender dysphoria, recommends an informed consent model that allows patients to pursue gender-affirming care, including surgery, without having to undergo extensive psychological counseling. But Colorado's prison system, like many across the country, doesn't adhere to those standards. Current Corrections Department policies require trans women to receive multiple recommendation letters from medical and mental health providers to be considered for transition-related surgery. Often, prisons offer gender-affirming care on paper, but lack qualified providers, making the care impossible to get, according to Matthew Murphy. That was the case for Talaya Murphy, who pursued gender-affirming surgery twice during her incarceration. Murphy went to prison in 2009 after a conviction resulting from an altercation with her abusive boyfriend, according to the lawsuit. Her sentence was reduced in 2013, she said. In 2019, she finally received a recommendation for surgery to treat her gender dysphoria from a corrections department psychiatrist. But she was told that her other medical providers didn't have the necessary training to evaluate her, according to the lawsuit which halted the process. She received surgical treatment only after her release from prison in 2020, she said. Gender dysphoria, left untreated, can result in depression, anxiety, thoughts of self-harm, and suicidality, 
all of which already affect trans people disappropriately because of the discrimination, stigma, and other social stresses, stressors they face. Those things are generally resolved or improved, at least, by undergoing gender-affirming clinical care, whether that's medical, procedural, or surgical, Matthew Murphy said. But prison systems are dragging their feet in providing treatment, he said. And a national shortage of gender-affirming care providers and surgeons makes matters worse. And so, people are then forced to go to the courts, he said. The consent decree will create two new voluntary housing options for trans women incarcerated in Colorado to better meet their specific needs and improve their safety. A voluntary 100-bed transgender unit whose development is already underway will be on the grounds of the men's Sterling Correctional Facility. For those approved to move to the women's prison, they will spend a few months in the 44-bed integration unit outlined in the consent decree. The adjustment time will be critical for both the cisgender women already housed in the women's prison and the trans women who are likely leaving traumatic situations in the men's prisons, said Sean Merkamper, senior staff attorney for the Transgender Law Center, who worked on the case. We have seen in other places when folks are just dropped in a really new environment it can be a sink-or-swim situation, Merkamper added. Eligibility for the units would be decided on a case-by-case basis by a committee, including medical and psychiatric experts trained in gender-affirming care, as well as prison officials, according to the settlement. But regardless of placement, Colorado's Corrections Department would still be legally required to provide trans women adequate mental and physical health care. Trans women should not be forced to go to the trans unit or to a woman's prison if that's not what they want, Merkamper said, and they cannot be punished or retaliated against for refusing to go. In response to the lawsuit, the Department of Corrections has hired an independent medical expert from Denver Health, as well as gender-affirming care specialist, to help oversee requests for housing assignments and surgical consults. Talaya Murphy hopes the new housing units and improved access to gender-affirming care will allow incarcerated trans women to focus less on safety and survival and more on rehabilitation and planning their lives outside prison walls. We want them to leave better off than they came in and get the care they need, said Murphy, who is now a small business owner in Colorado Springs and is pursuing his bachelor's bachelor's degree in finance and accounting. That's what it is all about. War protesters interrupt Crow. A handful of persistent protesters gathered at Rep. Jason Crow's town hall in Littleton on Wednesday night, urging him to call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war, drawing frustration from the audience in police intervention. The event was Crow's first town hall of the year, held to give an update on his recent work and answer questions from constituents. But throughout the evening, protesters repeatedly interrupted the order of questions decided by Crow's staff, criticizing the Democratic congressman's stance on the war. Many of the protesters said they were with the Colorado-Palestine Coalition, a group that was also involved in a recent rally at the Colorado Capitol, 
criticizing Governor Jared Polis' support for, of Israel, scattered throughout the audience in Littleton City Council chambers, the protesters took turns standing up and yelling at Crow between questions and over his words throughout the evening. Other event attendees shouted back, telling the protesters to sit down and shut up. As the commotion escalated, Littleton police officers escorted at least seven protesters out of the room. But protesters re-entered the room, holding flags and shouting, Free Palestine! and Shame on you! Officers then escorted the group out of the building. The protesters came to bring attention to the rising civil, civilian death toll in Gaza, where Israeli troops are fighting. On October 7th, Hamas militants killed about 1,200 people in Israel and took 250 others hostage, the Associated Press reported. Since then, Israel's military response has killed some 25,000 Palestinians and displaced an estimated 85% of Gaza's population, the Associated Press reported. Crow, who represents Colorado's 6th Congressional District, which encompasses much of Aurora and Arapahoe County, attempted several times to calm the crowd and share his stance on the conflict and the United States' role in it. Israel has the right to defend itself and a right to exist, Crow, Crow told the room. What is also true is that the Palestinian people have the right to live in peace and safety and dignity, too, and that there should be a Palestinian state much like there should be a Jewish state of Israel, that's why I have long supported a two-state solution. Crow said a ceasefire would require all sides of the conflict to abide by it, and he believes it would be impossible to get Hamas to abide. On December 12th, the United States and Israel were among just 10 United Nation, Nations member countries to vote against a resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the war. Of the rest of the countries, 153 member states were in favor of the resolution and another 23 abstained. Instead of a total ceasefire, Crow said he is calling for Israel to shift its policy to a more direct, sustained, precise counterterrorism operation that will address their threat, but will actually protect civilians. I've been pushing our administration and our government to pressure for that shift, he continued. And it has not happened in the way that I wanted it to happen, and it's not happening fast enough. So I'm going to continue to push for it because everybody has the right to live in dignity. And right now, the level of civilian casualties is, uh, is unacceptable. The protesters said Crow's responses were not enough for them. You can't be saying that you want an independent Palestinian state but then also supply Israel with funding and weapons and any other support that they ask for in the process of them committing ethnic cleansing and mass massacres, protester Mira Alul alleged. Since the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel, President Joe Biden's administration has expedited U.S. military and security assistance to Israel. The Congressional Research Service, a federal research agency, cites a report that as of late December, the U.S. has dispatched 240 transport, transport planes and 20 ships to deliver thousands of tons of armaments and equipment to Israel. 
It also says that Israel has ordered an additional $2.8 billion in purchases from the United States, which has delivered tens of thousands of bombs and artillery shells. Biden has also announced at least $100 million in direct humanitarian assistance for Gaza and the West Bank, according to the research agency. Terry Burns said another protester said the group disrupted the meeting to make a point. In addition to being part of the Colorado-Palestine coalition, Burns said is a member of a Jewish anti-Zionist organization called Jewish Voice for Peace. We are here disrupting that good old American tradition, the town hall, because this is a genocide and it's way past time for town halls, he said. This is an emergency situation. As some protesters left the meeting, Crow thanked them for coming. He said he has met with a number of them in recent weeks already and is open to discussion. I represent them too, he told the room. I take their concerns very seriously. I disagree with their tactics here tonight. They still have the right to be heard, and I will continue to do that. Arapahoe County counts the unhoused. As the sun set on a cold January day and workers headed home, work had just begun for Cameron Shropshire in Arapahoe County who set out to find unhoused people. The effort is called a point-in-time count, an annual occurrence where Shropshire, the program administrator for housing and homeless services for the county, and volunteers and employees and others count the number of unhoused people in the area. The purpose of the point-in-time count is to get a snapshot of what homelessness looks like in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our counties, said Shropshire. It is part of a national undertaking required by the federal government, which helps fund programs to help the unhoused. In the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, last year's nationwide point-in-time count was record-breaking. But officials say the count is not the most accurate in determining the scope of homelessness in communities, as a range of variables can result in an undercount. We've really expanded our reach this year, Shropshire said during the count on January 23rd, adding that efforts in Arapahoe County are expanding. We actually have a point-in-time count going up in the Eastern Plains right now, which hasn't been done before. For example, people were able to go to Kelver Library, which serves the Byers community in eastern Arapahoe County, to get counted and connected to resources. We really want to try and again make sure we're supporting the entire county, he said. The county sent its workers and volunteers onto the streets to connect with people experiencing homelessness, Shropshire said. There was a digital survey for people to fill out. He said the survey helps paint a picture of what circumstances are leading individuals to experience homelessness and how the county can be a better support to them. We learn what the individual needs to be successful as well, he said. The county also set up larger-scale magnet events to help identify more people and offer them resources. Castlewood Library in Centennial was a magnet event location. In a room inside, clothing, food, hygiene, and warming kits were available, 
along with Narcan, an emergency medicine that can reverse an opioid, opioid overdose. Point-in-time count is, na- is national. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, requires so-called continuum of care organizations that help the unhoused to conduct a count in the last 10 days of January each year, according to the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. Continuums of care are local planning bodies responsible for coordinating a range of homelessness services in a certain area, according to HUD. As of 2023, there were about 381 continuums of care nationwide. Arapahoe County's continuum of care is the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, a regional system that also includes six other counties, Adams, Jefferson, Douglas, Boulder, Broomfield, and Denver. They help to oversee this HUD point-in-time count and organize with the counties to really formulate kind of the plan, Shropshire said. A look at the numbers. On a single night in January 2023, roughly 653,100 people were experiencing homelessness across the U.S., according to HUD's 2023 Annual Homelessness Assessment Report to Congress. This is the highest number of people reported as experiencing homelessness on a single night since Pitt, point in time, count. Reporting began in 2007, the report said. Data from the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative showed that 9,065 people were counted as experiencing homelessness on January 30, 2023, in the Metro Denver region. The organization said this represents a roughly 31.7% increase from 2022. With COVID-19 relief funds for the prevention of homelessness coming to an end, as well as many other COVID-era protections, we've seen a sharp increase in the number of eviction filings as more households struggle to pay rent, said Jamie Reif, executive director of the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, in a July news release. This, paired with inflation and the increased cost of housing, is resulting in many people falling into homelessness and many being unable to obtain housing, Reif added. In a statement, Arapahoe County said it counts the number of unhoused people across all jurisdictions except within the city of Aurora, since Aurora does its own point-in-time count. In 2023, Arapahoe County counted 442 people experiencing homelessness, while 572 people were counted in Aurora. This was a small reduction from the 2022 count, but still demonstrates a large increase since our pre-pandemic counts, Arapahoe County said. Not the most accurate count. The Metro Denver Homeless Initiative warns against trending point-in-time data year over year. Because it says the count is only a snapshot on a single night with numerous variables that could result in an undercount. Vanessa Gates, the Centennial Homeless Outreach Liaison, said at a recent Centennial City Council meeting that just four people were counted as experiencing homelessness in Centennial during last year's point-in-time count. She said there are a lot of variables that can impact the count, such as the weather, and if there are enough volunteers to go out into the community to do outreach. 
So, it's not the most accurate count, but it's a tool, she said. There are also limitations on who gets counted as experiencing homelessness. In the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative's 2023 State of Homelessness report, it said that people who are staying with friends, family, or are in a motel or hotel are considered at risk of homelessness and are not included in the point-in-time count. A different data point that helps capture the scope of homelessness in the Denver metro region is how many people are assessing services throughout the year related to homelessness. Between July 1, 2022 and June 30, 2023, about 30,400 people assessed homelessness services as partner agencies of the Homeless Management Information System, which the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative oversees. Although the point-in-time count is only a snapshot of homelessness, Shropshire said it provides a starting point for communities to build upon, such as by doing more in-depth counts in the summer. You have to start somewhere, he said. So I think it's a good place to start to get that initial information and develop a baseline that you can grow upon. The People Mover Meet some of the people behind the new automated trains at Denver International Airport by Joe Davis. Twenty-six new automated trains are coming to Denver International Airport this summer, according to operators. Currently, 31 automated trains carry ticketed airport passengers from the three active concourses. About half the fleet has been in service since the airport opened in 1995 and has run over 1.4 million miles, so replacements are sorely needed, according to the airport. The new trains are also automated, but more than 73 people are responsible for keeping them running every day around the clock. Passenger traffic at Denver International Airport is expected to reach more than 78 million by the end of this year alone, and 100 million annual passengers are expected within the next three to five years. We are preparing for the future in a a variety of ways, including renovating the Great Hall, adding gates to concourses, and adding capacity to the trains to the gates, DIAC CEO Phil Washington said. The new train cars will increase the number of passengers that can be moved to the gates by approximately 850 per hour. They will reduce the time between arriving trains and allow us to run a more efficient operating schedule. These efficiencies are going to be felt by passengers and make for a more seamless experience at DEN. The first of the new trains arrived in December 2023 and will be tested through the next six months. Everyone is excited, from the director of operations to the mechanic who maintains the trains. The new trains may be automated, but the people who keep them running are skilled, working people who are eager to enter the next era of moving people around DIA. The Automated People Mover and Airport Nerd Stuff The trains are important to the operation of the airport, according to DIA Senior Director of Operations, Matt Robb. You can get to B and C concourse. The only way you can get there is on the train, Robb explained. It is a single point of failure, which is why we put such a heavy emphasis on maintaining the trains. 
if we get the train doesn't move, the airport doesn't move. Rob said that trains and airports have been his passion since age 13, when he took a trip through the O'Hara, O'Hare International Airport. Ryan Parrish, a train mechanic for Alstom DIA from Thornton, agreed that his military background prepared him for work on the trains. I was in the Army for five years. I worked on the Patriot missile system, he said. I guess I wanted work that kind of translated. Parrish went to Spartan College of Aeronautics in Broomfield to acquire more skills. His counselor at the college directed Parrish to Alstom. I mean, there's no money in the civilian world for taking out aircraft, but money is in fixing things, he said. Parrish has been with Alstom at DIA for six years. Carlos Alvarez is a helper mechanic from Aurora with two years of Alstom DIA. Alvarez was also educated at Spartan College. He worked on wind turbines before coming to Alstom. His previous skills helped ease the learning curve when he came to work on the trains. Once you know how to read schematics and turn wrenches, it's all the same, Alvarez, Alvarez said. The mechanics, managers, and everyone else at Alstom are eager to get their hands on the new train. Cortez said that they are just peeking over the shoulders of the new train's testers for now. They don't want us to touch it, Cortez said. Meet the eight locals preparing for Olympic marathon trials in Orlando. Former high school athletes gun for glory at the top of their sport by John Renfro. Between hours of practice bleeding into one another as runners take step after exhausting step, a singular goal dangles in front of them like an elusive, eternal glory-bringing carrot, a shot at the 2024 Olympics. Only 150 runners in the country are chosen to partake in the U.S. Olympic Team Marathon Trials in Orlando on February 3rd, and several are from around the Denver metro area. Only three will be chosen for the Olympics from the 150 who qualified for the trial run. We counted eight different runners from the Colorado community media coverage area. Though we could only speak with a few of them, meet all your local runners below. Garrett Lee. For Lee, a strong high school athlete at Heritage High School, his tunnel vision approach to the Olympics sparked a second wind in his love for running. I think I always loved running, but I took a little break, said Lee, who didn't run in college at the University of Denver. Once I graduated college and started working, running kind of became my main reprieve. In college, I liked to play intramural sports, but I found once I graduated and everyone was working, it was much more difficult to get groups together to play sports. I found that running every day was a better outlet for me. Lee finished fifth place at the 2010 5A Cross Country State Championship for Heritage, which finished second as a team that year. He also finished 10th place in the 2011 5A track 3200-meter run. I've always been pretty good at running, so I think once I jumped into running marathons, it became a bit of a calling to try and make the Olympic trials, Lee said. It's been Lee's focus for the last four years, he said. To qualify, runners have to run a marathon in 2 hours and 17 minutes, or less than a 
month qualifying period, Lee just made it with a time of 2 hours, 16 minutes, 57 seconds in the 2023 Grand Mas Marathon in Minnesota. His goal is to finish in the top 30 in Orlando. Connor Winter Winter was a decorated high school runner for Arapaho, school, Arapaho High School. In 2010, Winter was a 5A state champion in the 800-meter, 1600-meter, uh, and 3200-meter runs. In 2011, Winter returned for a sweep in all three categories to become a two-time state champion. He also finished second in the state in 5A cross-country in 2010, but he knows it's a very different ball game now. It is humbling. Anytime you go from the best in high school to even college at CU, when my teammate is lapping me on the first day of practice, it's tough, Winter said. Now, going from college to professional runners, I know it just gets even harder, but it's always you versus yourself. Winter qualified for a time of 2 hours, 15 minutes, 51 seconds at the 2023 Bank of America Chicago Marathon. It was a big full-circle moment for Winter, who tore his Achilles while training for the Olympic trials in 2021. It's been two years of recovery and training, but he's now back to running 100-plus miles per week. If he finishes in the top three in Orlando, he said he'll take a week off running and spend time with his family. Scott Fobble Fobble is one of the more famous and trophied runners in the entire poll of 150 participants. For one thing, he finished fourth in the 2016 U.S. Olympic Trials, just one spot short of being selected to represent Team USA. He was also the top American finisher in each of the last three Boston marathons, finishing seventh place in each one. His qualifying time for 2024 was two hours, 8 minutes 52 seconds in the 2022 Boston Marathon. Fobble is a Nike athlete and released a book called Inside a Marathon, which recorded Fobble and his longtime former coach, Ben Rosario, during their training regime leading up to the TS, TCS New York City Marathon in 2018. After multiple championships and records for the Wheat Ridge Farmers, Fobble was a multi-time multi All-American, All-Region, and All-Conference selection in cross-country and track for the University of Portland. Tyler Pennell This Golden High School graduate qualified with a time of 2 hours, 12 minutes, 16 seconds in the 2023 Chevron Houston Marathon. After a strong high school career in which Pennell was selected as an All-Conference cross-country and track runner and All-State in the 3,200-meter in track, he attended Western Colorado University in Gunnison. Pennell's accolades include being crowned the 2014 USATF Marathon Champion. Ian Butler. Butler is a Green Mountain High School graduate who still lives in Lakewood. His qualifying time was 2 hours, 14 minutes, 48 seconds in the 2022 Boston Marathon, but his personal best marathon time is 2 hours, 9 minutes, 45 seconds. Butler famously overcame two brain injuries to become an All-American runner in the early 2010s. He also attended Western Colorado University and racked up accolades which can be found on the school's website. 
Connor Weaver. Weaver's home time is Parker, but he attended Mountain Vista High School in Highlands Ranch before running cross-country at BYU. He qualified with a time of 2 hours, 15 minutes, 46 seconds in the 2022 Grand Moss Marathon. According to his BYU cross-country profile, Weaver received all, all academic honors all four years in high school, was named to the All-State team in track for the 1,600-meter and 3,200-meter, led cross-country team to two state championships, was named cross-country and track and field team captain, was a two-time national champion in Olympic distance triathlon, was an All-State cross-country runner, was a Nike cross-country all-region athlete, was a three-time national champion triathlete. Weaver was also a member of the only national championship cross-country team at BYU in 2019. Ben Payne. Payne currently lives in Colorado Springs, but is from Arvada. He cut his teeth as a runner at Faith Christian High School and qualified with a time of 2 hours, 17 minutes, 15 seconds at the 2023 Bank of America Chicago Marathon. As a pilot, Payne works for Southwest Airlines and flies for the Colorado Air National Guard. This will be Payne's third Olympic trial after trying in 2016 and 2020. He finished 17th and 31st in the previous trials, respectively. Career highlights include finishing 9th at the 2016 New York City Marathon. Paxton Smith. Smith is now an 8th grade English teacher at, in Miami, but he's from Highlands Ranch and ran at Mountain Vista High School. He qualified with a time of 2 hours, 17 minutes, 24 seconds at the 2022 Grand Moss Marathon. Smith's list of accolades in both high school and for the Colorado University Buffaloes is too long to list here, but can be found on his Buffs athletic profile on the university's athletic website. For the Buffs, Smith ran for two cross-country Pac-12 championship teams in 2019 and 2021. He is the youngest runner on, on this list at 25. Colorado Camaraderie both Lee and Winters said they know the strength of athletes and runners in Colorado, and not just from training at 5,280 feet up. There's a sense of support and brotherhood that comes from growing up here together. It is, a, it is special to be able to train in some of the best locations and with great runners who call Colorado home, Winters said. I have learned so much from my high school coaches and then at CU that have shaped me into the tough runner I am today. My goal is to continue to perform at a high level and inspire the next generation of Colorado runners to do even better. They admitted they lean on each other for training, discipline, friendship, and strength. Waking up to run 20 miles alone per training could seem almost impossible, Lee said, but with winter ready to tackle it with him, it becomes not just possible, but something to be conquered. Above all else, though, the community of runners in Colorado is what inspires such great performances from Colorado athletes, Lee said. There are always people to run with and friends to help get you out the door. We all root for each other, and together we can go further than we could alone. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Found with a loaded gun, 
an Arapahoe Community College student is arrested. An Arapahoe Community College student with a felony arrest warrant was taken into custody on Thursday after police found him with a loaded handgun on the Littleton campus. The student, who, was, who has not been named yet by officials, had a felony arrest warrant for failure to appear on weapons charges from Jefferson County, according to Arapahoe Community College campus police chief Joseph Morris. The student also allegedly had a history of assault, Morris said. On January 30th, the Denver's Marshal Office contacted campus police to inform them they were attempting to locate a person with a felony arrest warrant, Morris said. Morris said the Denver Marshal's Office believed this person was enrolled in classes and had a history of violence and weapons violation, so he could be armed. Morris said there was not an ongoing threat to campus safety or reason to believe the student was not going to use his weapon on campus. Campus police created a plan to apprehend the individual the next time he was on campus, Morris said. With assistance from the Littleton Police Department, the campus police located the student in parking lot B on the campus around 3.55 p.m. on February 1st. Upon arresting the individual, police found a loaded handgun in his backpack. The student is in custody in the Arapahoe County Detention Center and has additional charges pending related to a possession of a firearm by a previous offender carrying a firearm without a permit and unlawful carry on a college campus, Morris said. Morris said he could not release information about the identity of the student due to educational privacy laws. The Littleton Police Department also did not release the name to the Littleton Independent. There are currently no active threats at any of ACC's campuses. A statement from Arapahoe Community College reads, ACC encourages faculty, staff, and students to refer concerns, unusual behavior, an inappropriate or dangerous conduct to our campus police department and dean of students office. The health, safety, and well-being of our students, employees, and community members are top priority at ACC. Sequest Littleton Aquarium set to close. Sequest Littleton, an interactive aquarium that faced allegations of poor animal treatment for years, will close Sunday. The business, which is located in Southwest Plaza in unincorporated Jefferson County, announced the closure recently. Sequest continues its strength as a company and will operate in states that support our interactive business model, the company wrote in a Facebook post. We believe this is such a value to the community, and we are thrilled that we can create a magical and unforgettable experience for every guest by connecting them with amazing animals from all over the planet. Sequest has eight locations across the U.S. Visitors can snorkel with stingrays and meet non-aquatic creatures like sugar gliders. People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, also known as PETA, has criticized the company for several years. The company's statement on Facebook did not say specifically why the aquarium is closing, but said it will continue operation in states that support its interactive business model. 
Colorado Parks and Wildlife, a state oversight agency, announced in 2019 that it filed a notice of, of suspension with the aquarium. Sequest opened its facility in the Southwest Plaza Mall in the summer of t- 2018, CPW said in a release at the time. Since that time, the facility has had numerous violation episodes and failed to adhere to several of the conditions of their state licensure. Sequest was noticed to a CPW suspension hearing in March 2019. The hearing resulted in a two-year CPW licensing suspension that would have ended in 2021. CPW did not immediately answer questions about the timeline of Sequest licensure. But as reported by Westward, Sequest Littleton was able to operate without licensing for some time by using unregulated species. The aquarium reapplied for a new license in 2021 but never received one, Westward reported. Several recent inspection reports from the U.S. Department of Agriculture showed critical, non-compliant issues at the aquarium. A July 2023 report documented an incident in which a sugar glider named Luna was found with her tail entangled in an item in her enclosure. Approximately half of her tail had to be amputated due to the injury, the report states. A year prior, a savannah cat bit a visitor, a report states. The report states that inadequate handling or control of animals during public interactions put both the public and the animals at risk. Animals involved in injuring the public could be at risk of euthanasia, the report states. The facility must ensure that animals are handled so there is minimal risk of harm to the animal and to the public. Other reports outline enclosure disrepair, insufficient sanitation, unsupervised public interaction with animals, and failure to document medication delivery. The reports do not include responses from Sequest Littleton. In response to requests for commitment, staff members at Sequest Littleton directed the Littleton Independent to a Frequently Asked Questions page on their website. This page did not include information about the closure. The Littleton Independent also reached out to the business press contact and did not hear back by the time of publication. Sequest Littleton said it will be safely relocating its animals at its closes. Their care and well-being remain an utmost priority for Sequest, the company wrote on Facebook. Thanks again for joining us for the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.